We will read Psalm 16 together. You can find it on your pew Bible on page 453 if you wanted to read along um, silently with me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always. I'm sorry, I lost my spot. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Join with me as we pray. Lord, we offer up a thanksgiving, and with grateful hearts we come before you, and we thank you for your word that you have preserved so perfectly for us. We thank you that we have a God that we can cry out to and ask for preservation, and we thank you for being our portion and our cup and for the lines that you have placed for us and the beautiful inheritance that we have in you. We thank you for the counsel that you give us as we ask from you and as we plead with you. And I ask that we would always continue to do that. Thank you for making known the paths of life for us. Um, We thank you for your sovereignty in our lives and the many blessings that you bless us with every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I just did a little math, and it appears that we will be in the Psalms for another 15 years. So if you're a young person, you can come up to me in 15.34 years, and our seven, five years, uh, three quarters of a year, and tell me, you, you said back in 2020. So we should be here until 2035. I look forward to our time. We're working through the Psalms about eight at a time through the summer uh, each year. We've, we've done this for three years now, and we've got some, some more to go. And I trust that it's been an encouragement to you. This has been, if this is a, your first time in our summer Psalm series, this has been an encouragement to many, just the opportunity to take Uh, the Psalms and study them in maybe ways that you you haven't thought about before. Uh, We we tend to kind of work through the Psalms. I I grew up reading five Psalms and a proverb every day. And and you read through them, but it can be difficult to to understand, well, how do I think about Jesus Christ? How do I think about the gospel? Uh, How do I think about these Psalms for me today? And just the opportunities that we've had the last two years and now this the third summer 
to be able to do this. It's been encouragement to uh, those who've been able to be here. I trust it'll be an encouragement to you this summer. Let me just, by way of introduction, very quickly run over a couple reminders that I have given the past couple summers. And that is, as you're studying the Psalms, even this summer, maybe as a family, I want to give you three things that may be helpful for you to remember when you're studying through them. The first one is that the Psalms are actually five different books. So you have five books in one book, if you will. Uh, You can see that. Let me just encourage you to turn over in your Bibles to Psalm 41. You'll see in Psalm 41, uh, between 41 and 42, you'll see what it says there, book 2. And then you could go all the way, if you will, to Psalm 73, and you'd see book 3, and so forth and so on. There's five different books, and others have done the helpful work of articulating that there is a theme for each one of these books. And we're in book 1 this morning in Psalm 16. That theme has has been articulated by some is the king's confidence in God's care. And the first 41 psalms relate to that theme in some way, shape, or form. So remember, the psalms are actually five different books, and there's a shift in theme as you go through each one. The second thing I would encourage you to remember is the psalms are actually Hebrew poetry. You're not going to get the rhymes that we get in the English language. They do have a particular flow. They have characteristics. Their big emphasis is on word pictures. And it may be helpful for you to know that Hebrew poetry tends to find its emphasis in the middle of the poem, not the end of the poem. So you could go to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that psalm. You get to verse 3 and 4. That's the center of that psalm. And the the main point, the drawing out that David is doing for us there is God is with us. I'll leave that to you to study at your own time. Five different books, Hebrew poetry. Finally, we can tend to read the Psalms as individual chapters. And they don't have the relation, Evan reminded of this last week, they don't have the relation in a narrative to the chapter before and the chapter after after in the way of a story. But they are related in a way. The Holy Spirit instructed the writer to put 16 after 15 and 15 after 14 and so forth and so on. And so read in your reading of the Psalms, read chapter 15 and read chapter 17. It can be helpful to you. All right, Psalm 16. This is a mictum. What is a mictum? Well, many would hold to this being probably some sort of musical term. And there's also another description of what a mictum is that I'll just say very frankly, different theologians are mixed on, but I think it's helpful for us. And that is this idea that it's a golden psalm. And it has this picture of of being engraved in gold, say, on one of the pillars of the temple. That's the picture here. Or that something that would be be printed on a fine canvas and, and displayed as a decoration. 
The idea being here, whether it's a musical term or whether it's the golden psalm, it's this idea that Psalm 16 has a particular beauty to it, has a particular wonder to it, that sets it apart from some of the other psalms that we might study. Even in David's description, a mictum of David, it sets before us by way of context the idea that there is something special here and quite beautiful. It's written by David. We're not sure when or where or under what circumstances he was when he wrote these verses. And yet it's pretty clear, at least in verse 1, that he's asking for protection. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. We need to pause and just help ourselves to remember that regardless of the attacks that David may have had, we are very much under attack and always will be under attack as Christians. Our faith is always and will always be until the return of Christ seeking to be undermined. Our attack is from without. Our attack is from within. In a world where we're looking for and telling people you can find a safe place or safe places, there is no safe place or safe places. Our homes, our businesses, our pockets, our beds are not places of safety, but actually places of war. The Christian is in a war. And that war can seem quite daunting. Uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but if you flip on the news this morning, what you'll see is fire. Wendy's on fire in Atlanta. Seven-lane highways blocked with protesters. People being beaten up. It's a scary time. This is our nation in its rawest form showing really what it is. And it hates God. We're in a war. And yet David reminds us this morning, and we so desperately need this every day of our lives, that God is still God. He has not abdicated his throne in any way, shape, form, or fashion. He reigns today. He always will. He will reign tomorrow. He reigned yesterday. His glory he will not give to any other, he says. He's our help, our shield. Our heart can trust in him and be secure. He is good and God always delights to do good and never does evil. And for the Christian, it is a life of faith, believing and walking in the light of that truth. This is David doing just that. Crying out to God for preservation and then committing himself to walking in accordance with his cry. Will we trust that nothing at all good comes from anyone other than God? If we approach the Psalms, if we approach this Psalm, if you approach your Bible this week with a warfare-like mentality, the Bible changes. Your recognition of its importance for your soul shifts in your mind. You're in a foxhole on the front lines Shells going off around you and you desperately need word from the general. And then you open your Bible and there's the word. If you don't think of yourself in a foxhole and you think of yourself on a beach in a cabana with one of those little drinks, then who needs word from home? We're in a warfare. 
We're in a war. We're at war for our own souls and for the souls of those that are around us. And thank God Jesus Christ has won the day for us. Our study is certainly of this Psalm of David, Psalm 16. David is certainly the prevailing character of this psalm and yet Christ is so much more and I think this is probably why this particular psalm whether it's a tune or an engraving has such a sweetness to it and we'll see that in a few moments when we think about how this psalm is used in the New Testament let me offer to you by way of summation of this whole psalm one thought it might be helpful for you to jot this down as we think through the particular portions of this passage And it is this, our God provides protection, a path, and immense pleasure. Our God provides protection, a path, and immense pleasure, current and eternal, for his children through his holy son, Jesus Christ. And and I want you to underline immense pleasure. We'll see that here in a few moments. By way of division, we're going to look at verse 1 and then 2 all the way down to verse 6 and then 7 through and following. Let's look at first verse 1, this prayer of David. He's requesting God's keeping hand of protection upon his life. O God, preserve me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. We can think of this word preserve to keep to maintain. Uh, Maybe you can think of a refrigerator and you put something in the refrigerator and it keeps it. It keeps it healthy. It keeps it from rotting. Uh, Another way to think about this word preserve is something that is marked. You mark it. Uh, The illustration that comes to my mind is I played soccer a lot of years growing up and I was told, mark that man. And what that meant was, is I was to identify that player that I was assigned to. I was to set my eyes upon them. I was to put myself in their proximity. And I was not to allow them to move beyond where I was. I was to guard the space they were in. That is what God does for us. In Christ, he has marked us. He has identified us. He watches us. He is in our space, if you will. He is preserving us. David knows this. This is a prayer derived from the one who has been given the faith to believe that God can preserve. This isn't a hope, but a request of faith. Now, notice, if you will, the request is is drawing out a particular attribute of God. Something more than just that God can do something, preserve, but that God is something. And the is that he is, is he is a creator. He is the creator. The nature and character of God as the creator gives God the ability to preserve the one he creates. We could go to Genesis 1.1. We know this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What God has created... God can preserve. If the enemies of God then can undermine the nature of God as creator, this is why we have the attack that we do today 
upon God as the creator, upon creationism, if they can undermine that attack, if they can undermine that truth that God is the creator, well, then we don't have a God that can preserve. If he's not a creator, he can't preserve. If he can preserve, he must be the creator. For God to be able to preserve, he has to be the creator. And it's more than just creation. We know this. God is able to preserve our souls because the, he's the one who has created us in Jesus Christ. We can think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us in Christ. We were dead. He created us. He made us alive. We're speaking spiritually here. Because we've been newly created in Christ, he preserves us in Christ. We'll see that more in a moment. I want you to notice, though, the second portion of verse 1. Preserve me, O God. That's the first part. Look at the second part of verse 1. For in you I take refuge. David states his commitment to God to seek God as his refuge as he requests God to protect him. He's not saying, God, preserve me as I seek to find refuge over here. That does not work. God, preserve me as I seek to find refuge in you alone. Do we act in accordance with our request to God? When we cry out to God for help, as we fight a particular sin, do we then go back to the sin or do we fight it? Do we ask God to help us and then walk in ways that are not pleasing to him? One makes a mockery of God to request and not comply. This is not David here. David is requesting and then complying. He's requesting in faith. He's complying in faith. David's prayer in verse 1 is followed by 2 through 6, his proclamation of that commitment to Christ, of that commitment to God in faith. Notice the second portion of our text, 2 through 6. If he's praying over here, he's proclaiming in 2 through 6, and he's proclaiming his commitment to the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And there's two Lords there. You'll see it. Your Bible probably has one in all caps, and one capital L, and then a lower O-R-D. And those are two different Hebrew words. The capitals across the board, I say to the Lord, the first Lord there is Jehovah. That is the name of God. The second Lord is Adonai. That is the title of God. And so let me put it in this way. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord his name, thou art my Lord, his title, my goodness. We could put it another way. The God of the universe, that's the Jehovah, is my Lord, is my master, is my savior. This is what it means for the Christian 
to call unto our God. This is what it means to call to him as our father. It is only when we realize that as Christians we are demanded full devotion to God will we be able to say the second half of that verse, of that second verse, I have no good apart from you. This is David saying, I claim you as my God and I submit to you as well. Those who have not submitted all to the sovereign will and rule of God in their lives cannot say this. You can't claim God as your own and then not submit to him. This was the lordship controversies in theological circles many, many years ago. The idea that you could claim Jesus Christ as your savior and not have him as your Lord. Well, the scripture says, no, that doesn't work. If you claim him as your savior, he then is your Lord, as David is saying here, in full submission to him. Are we convinced? Are you convinced this morning that no good can come from anything or anyone outside of God? Now, if you're not convinced by that, you're going to be disappointed today because your spouse is going to let you down. Your best friend's going to say an ill word to you. Your job is not going to meet its expectation. Tomorrow might rain when it was supposed to be sunny. If we're looking for good outside of God, you will not find it. Are we convinced that no good comes from anything or anyone outside of God? If you're convinced of that and you know God, then by his grace we can weather the unfulfilled expectations of our lives. Our greatest joy and satisfaction rests in Christ alone. Jesus Christ, he's the way, the truth, and the life. We know this from John 14. No sin can provide greater pleasure than obeying and serving Christ. No book can provide greater insight and wisdom than the Bible. No conversation can provide greater peace than time spent on our knees in prayer. The greatest fun and pleasure of any relationship can be found with the saints and not with the world. Even the saints that we have trouble with sometimes. Spurgeon helps us here in 2 through 6, or really 2 and 3. His question is, if you're committing to the Lord as your sovereign, if you're submitting to him, what is evidence that you are a Christian? What is evidence that you are submitting to him? And, and he's drawn out a couple of things. There's five of them. I'll move through them quickly. But, but notice in verse 2 and 3, some evidences of true faith from Spurgeon here. One, allegiance to divine authority. Allegiance to divine authority. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Two, rejection of self-righteousness. There's nothing good in me. All that is good is in God. Three, doing good to the saints. How sweet, how pleasant, how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Is that in unity of similarity, of hobby, of sport? No, of in Christ. Four, appreciation of saintly excellence. 
Uh, what a joy it is to be able to look at the brother or sister in Christ, see them walking in the Lord, see them overcoming and fighting habitual sin, see them growing in their delight for Christ, and being able to appreciate that as compared to saying, now wait a minute, you're doing better than I am right now. Five, delight in their society, in the society of the saints. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Allegiance to divine authority, rejection of self-righteousness, doing good to the saints, appreciation of saintly excellence, delight in their society. There's five simple fruits, simple evidences of true faith from just two and three there of Psalm 16. But notice how the psalmist draws that out in contrast with verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The idolatry, idolatry will never bring you anything but sorrow. The sorrow that is due only to idolatry. Matthew Henry puts it this way. They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whosoever thinks one God too little will find two too many and yet hundreds not enough. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. We, we could spend all day on just that verse and drawing out the despair that is only found in sin. The, the delight, the, the quick tang, if you will, of the pleasures of sin and how quickly they fade. But there's a shift in this passage, really from verse 4 on, because he, he describes what it is to be in idolatry, but then the rest of it, he's going to help us understand. And in Christ, that's not us. We don't have sorrow that multiplies, that grows exponentially. We have delight. We have immense pleasure. But we must recognize that to say yes to God in allegiance to him, verse 2, to delight in the saints he's given around us, verse 3, is required of us then to say no to competing allegiances. Look at 5 and 6. There's word pictures here. Chosen portion, cup, boundaries, pleasant places, Beautiful inheritance. Think of David's life. Think of the nation of Israel. Think of the boundaries assigned to each particular tribe of Israel. Uh, think of this idea of portion, cup, lot, places, inheritance. Recognize the provision and protection for the body that is being described here. Recognize that that's a word picture for the protection and provision that God provides for our souls. God does so much more for us than even portions and cups and lots and places and inheritances can possibly do. 
The first section, verse 1, was a prayer. The second was proclamation of commitment. The third here, 7 through 11, we'll spend the most of our time here, is praise. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I understand this to mean the innermost part of the soul, your affections, your desires. It's clear in Scripture that an excellent measure of the soul of a man can be found in what one does at night. What his soul longs to do when the sun goes down. You can see the young man, the young woman in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. You can see what Christ does praying many times throughout the night in his life in the book of Mark. We can look at Peter's betrayal at night. We can think of the thief that comes in the night to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet we can recognize that the heart that is devoted to Christ is devoted to Christ at all times. There's no competing allegiance even at night. Note the wonder, if you will, in verses 8 and following of having God as our Father. I'm just going to draw out some of the words. We're not shaken. Your heart is glad. Whole being rejoices. Flesh dwells secure. Soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. Know the path to life. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. If I was offering to you this morning a sales pitch, this sounds like the good life. Not shaken. Glad heart. Whole being rejoices. Flesh dwells secure. Could I add eternal life? And yet here's the catch. It's only in Jesus Christ. Look at the second portion of verse 10. It's the one thing that sticks out that we say, well, is that, that can't be us. Or let your Holy One see corruption. But if I just look in my Bible, two chapters in Psalms to the left, I see God looking down in Psalm 14, verse 2, upon the children of man to see if there were any who would understand and seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So how, how can verse 10 be about me? And it's not. It's about Christ. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Let me remind you of what I stated at the beginning of our time together this morning that our God provides protection, a path, and immense pleasure, current and eternal for His children through His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. The life described as I've drawn out in verses 8 through 11 comes through Jesus Christ. The one who has Christ has the ability to know this type of life. The one like Christ. And that is what needs to be known. You have the ability in Christ to know life like Christ knew life. And knows life now. And if you're thinking, that's the good life. But I'm looking at my life and not seeing the good life. Then look at the life of Christ. Because that's your model. It wasn't one that was free from suffering. It wasn't one that was free from pain or danger. 
but one when fully given to the service of the Father has joy unspeakable and full of glory. Look with me at Acts chapter 2. This psalm, verse 25 of Acts chapter 2, was written by David, but it wasn't about David. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit to point us to Christ. Notice verse 25. This is Peter preaching. God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death. That's the life of Christ. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Now, I don't know. I don't know when Christ may have prayed this. But can you picture it in the garden? The cross awaits and he's praying this. Can you picture it on the cross? Death awaits. The wrath of God is his father is set on him. And this is what he's praying. Go to Acts chapter 13. If Peter is preaching this in Acts 2, Paul picks it up again in Acts 13. Verse 35. Therefore, he says in another psalm, that's therefore David says in another psalm, speaking not of himself, but of another, Christ, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. The path of life for Christ went through suffering and the grave and then eternal glory. Glory so unspeakable, it was for the joy of that glory that Christ endured the cross for us. And because of Christ not seeing corruption, not seeing death, but raised from the grave, our souls today, your soul, will not be abandoned at the grave because Christ's soul was not abandoned at the grave. That's what what Psalm 16 is about. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Therefore, you will not see corruption for those in Christ Jesus. And we we cannot miss the idea, though, that the path of life is the narrow path Matthew 7, 14, narrow is the way. It wasn't promised to you that the, wrath, the, the, the path would be smooth and easy. I've got wounds on me this morning because I tried to run a path this week that was not smooth and easy and I face planted. And we do that in the Christian life. We're running a path that is fraught with difficulty but, but was paved with the blood of Christ. 
Therefore, the inheritance of Christ does not mimic the brightly wrapped sin-filled packages of the world. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because that's what Christ went through. But look at what we've been given in Christ. It may not be yours physically, but it is certainly yours spiritually. And for the mind stayed on Christ, you're not shaken. Heart is glad. Whole being rejoices. Flesh dwells secure. Soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. Know the path to life. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Eternal life. If you're here this morning and do not know Jesus Christ, all I can promise to you is what verse 4 states in our passage. All I can promise you is sorrow. That's all the Bible promises you. And all I can set before you this morning is, as Paul states, the foolishness of the cross. Acts 13, if you're still there, if not turned back to it, I, I want you to I want you to look at, we read verse 35. I want you to look at verse 38 and 39. Because Paul preaching in Acts 13 is preaching a gospel message. And he centers that message on the resurrection of Christ. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, Acts 13, 38 and 39, that through this man, who's that man? Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Even death for the Christian cannot break the protection God has upon his children's souls. But if you do not know Christ, if you've not found forgiveness in him alone, then all we can offer to you is sorrow. And I can't tell you how to find joy in any other way than through Jesus Christ. It's going to sound like crazy talk for me to tell you that going and working in the 103 degree Texas sun to mow someone's lawn in order that you might minister to them Christ is going to be far more fun than whatever sinful pleasure you're tempted to do for the next five minutes. That's crazy talk. But it's true. It's the foolishness of the cross. If you're in your sin, there's only one hope and that is to look to Christ through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Will you repent of your sin and trust him? Will you do so in faith? Will you plead with God to let you see the glory of Christ? And then let me just simply state that when he saves you, you can see Psalm 16 and in spite of your difficult circumstances and wonder and marvel 
at the immense joy he's given you that defies your circumstances. John chapter 10, I have two more. No, I have three more passages. I want you to see and then we're done. John chapter 10, you may turn there if you like. I'll read it for you if you want. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. Listen to the description that we have here of the preserving power of God protecting us and caring for us. John chapter 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Those who are his, he will never cast out. His sheep know his voice. The keeping power of God in Christ. Romans chapter 8, 35 through 39. Will Becker alluded to this passage in his prayer of praise. God provides protection, a path, and immense pleasure for his children through his holy son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know this passage. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we were being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, life, angels, rulers, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we pray, preserve us. And we find refuge in you and you alone. Every refuge, every fortress, whether it be the fortress of the family or of money or power, children, job, business, can be taken by another power or time except the fortress that God provides in Christ. This is the glory even of how That last few verses in Jude ends. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are in a war, but we are in a war that has been won. We are in the midst of a crumbling kingdom while we serve an everlasting kingdom. And you can trust that even as you battle this week in proclamation of your commitment to him, that the gates of hell shall never prevail against the kingdom that is Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the church. So I'd encourage you, fight well. Fight knowing the goodness that comes from God alone as described for us in Psalm 16 this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. To you alone is all the glory. To you alone 
can we look to for goodness? Can we look for grace? Can we look for help? Father, I pray for each of us here this morning. I pray, Father, for those, whether young or older, who are not fighting well. They're living a life of hypocrisy. They're saying one thing and in the night they're doing else, something else. They're saying one thing and they're desiring and believing and acting out upon other things. Oh, Father, help them. Oh, Father, give them grace. May they behold in the face of Jesus Christ joy unspeakable and full of glory. And may they behold in the face of the shiny temptations around them sorrow and blood and danger and peril and hopelessness. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to hear this golden tune, to be reminded that Jesus Christ never saw corruption, never saw eternal death because he was perfect. And therefore, those of us in Christ will never see it either. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Father, we thank you for your grace to us and toward us in Christ. As we sing here in a few moments, as we fellowship with one another in a few minutes, may it be strengthening to our souls the reminder to one another, the help we might give to one another of the work of Christ for us and the help that we have in this daily life. All for your glory. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.